this is another special episode of Share the Load with me and CJ Kitten Miller talking about dating preferences and where they come from. Good morning. Good morning, my friend. <laughs> how are you today? I'm well. I'm well. Thank you. Good. How are you? I'm good. I've got a kitty cat next to me. I I mean, you know that I am a cat, but I also have a cat next to me. So mm -hmm. cat for cat. Yeah. So good good morning. Good morning <laughs> to all the cats and dogs yeah. and kittens out there. Um, yeah. I'm CJ Miller, CJ Kitten Miller. I am a friend and colleague of Mia's. I do gender and sexuality education work and gender and sexuality consultant work among several things and I cut the beginning. Mia, did you frame why we're here today? I did. I said that um, we're going to be talking about um, dating preferences and why, where they come from, how they're formed, um, and uh, like the media um, that you know that helps shape those for us, um, and then also talk about like challenging those preferences um with the same amount of like attention and critical thought that we would the that we would challenge the media or examine the media that is um those things for us great yeah um yeah and how if we are invested in challenging certain you know systems that exist in the society that we live in and the way they're internalized in our body that dating preferences should probably be an arena in which you examine those things and how maybe sort of often that is an area that people don't pay particular attention to or in my experience in educating about this stuff and that post we were talking about people can get kind of um, reactive and upset when we talk about how things like transphobia and fatphobia and ableism play into like who you're choosing to date, who you're choosing to. And that's, the, that's the thing, right? Is that these are like choices that we make. There are some perhaps like innate dynamics around who we find attractive, but by and large things that are social <laughs> constructs like beauty standards. Mm-hmm play into who we choose or desire would would desire to date right i think that there's um i think that some of the resistance to looking at where like examining your preferences and where they come from is like um wanting to feel like um or wanting to believe or perhaps uh being taught that that sexuality is fixed um, and that it's not something that anyone that it, that like you're born with it, and it's just it just is, and that it's not something that is um, informed by your surroundings. It's just like a truth about you, um, and I think that you and I would both argue that that's not the case. Yeah, I mean, I think there are some in, you know innate things that are built into our bodies, and you know like. Um, but I think that there is some nuance there, I guess, is what I would say. There are yeah, ways was... in which 
things are certainly impacted by environmental qualities. I mean, I could offer the example that you and I were playing kind of playing a, me and I were playing kind of a fun theoretical game where I was challenging them. I was like, Mia, in a non-binary framework, how do we define heterosexuality? Mm -hmm. And like, you know, it's, it's difficult because heterosexuality as an idea only can exist within a binary framework. So if like we didn't have the constructs of gender, then like heterosexuality like wouldn't exist as a concept. And that's not to say that heterosexuality as it relates to our like animal being in terms of like connection that that those attractions wouldn't exist, but the concept itself is tethered to societal definitions around gender. Yes. Um, yeah. And I think, I think it's like, as with pretty much everything, it's like a nature and a nurture question. Um, it's both. Totally. So that brings us to our, our overarching thing is that, you know, if our preferences for what we find attractive, with um, undoubtedly we all have particular preferences and desires, um, is informed by our environment and to some degree influenced by our environment and the situations we exist in. And if we exist in an environment that is largely racist and transphobic and ableist and fatphobic, that there is a possibility that those ideologies and those ways of existing and those belief systems, beauty standards inform our, our dating preferences to some degree. Right, of course. And how, how are we interrogating those things? Have you even thought about that? Right. <clears throat> so in talking about what we wanted to talk about, um, I was reflecting on where a lot of my preferences come or like came from when I was younger, at least in terms of like who I was attracted to when I first started finding myself attracted. <laughs> and a lot of them were shaped by definitely the TV I was watching. And I remember watching Friends and seeing that show as like, um, you know, examples of like adult relationships. Um, and that is like, that is an all white cast. You know, they're all like pretty thin and conventionally attractive. They're all cis. Um, that show is very transphobic and homophobic and fatphobic and pretty much anything phobic. Um, and I remember watching and being really, uh, like, you know, at a very impressionable age, seeing that, like, Joey and Chandler watch Baywatch and, like, drool over these women. And so that, at, between that and growing up in Los Angeles with my dad, being a talent manager and my mom writing for women's magazines. Um, it wasn't just that those things were all shaping my preferences around who I found desirable, but they were also shaping how I was choosing to present myself so that I would be attractive to people so that I would be desirable to people that I found desirable. So it was like having this sort of, you know, cyclical, um, like 
symbiotic or almost like parasitic relationship where it was like change it was like showing me who I should want and then who they want and then by extension who I should try to emulate in order to be desirable to the people that I'm being told that I should want <laughs> and at some point you started to understand that that was something that was sort of like being that was influencing you from like an external perspective and that you you know if you wanted to challenge the way those things were living in your body that you needed to take some action to do so yeah yeah i think what started to happen um was that i was starting to notice that there was like a separation between the people that i was like um just sort of noticing you know, like walking down the street type of thing. There was like people where I would be like, oh, that person is attractive. And then a, a really big disparity between that, which was pretty consistent. And then like the people that I was actually finding myself connecting with on like an emotional and mental level. Yeah. Um, and the people that I was finding myself really connecting with um, often weren't the, the same um, sort of, you know, physical type as the people that I was sort of noticing um, before getting to know them. So that was, that was probably kind of the beginning of challenging it where I was like, Oh, I'm, this is not actually helping me. These, these ideas that I have of like nor these normative beauty standards are not um, actually helping me find the connection that I'm looking for. And so there started to be kind of like a breaking down of those um, like of the desires around exclusively physical traits. Um, and then I definitely like that was, you know, probably in my like late teens, early 20s. And then as I got older, I was noticing how I was interacting with dating apps where I was like, I'm swiping pretty quickly on people who don't fit this very normative physical archetype. So I'm going to slow down. And I'm going to like, make sure that I actually read people's bios and like, look for like, like a, a vibe, you know, does this person seem like they're interested in the things that I'm interested in. I started looking a little bit deeper than just like the physical traits and it started to really expand who I was finding myself attracted to and I think that came that was like you know gender race body type like all all kinds of things not just like um breaking out of this kind of like cookie cutter you know uh idea of what I thought was supposedly attractive yeah i mean we see even in tracing like certain historical pathways like what has come in and out of like the main dominant viewpoint around like what is beautiful and what is attractive right so undoubtedly if those things can shift on a societal level like you can microcosmically within your own environment also shift those things so you know changing the types of media you consume mm -hmm. you know interacting with dating apps in a very different way what who are the people that you spend time with even beyond dating um what is your you know your immediate community like who are the people that you're spending time with right. um <clears throat> And yeah, me and, me and I have come together to talk about this because a while ago, a couple months ago, I made this 
post around um, like questioning if you're dating based on genitalia, I think like a lot of people would probably say that like, if I was like, cool, is genitals the main thing that you're choosing as your criteria for dating? Most people would be like, no, 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 no. But, you know, evidence would show in certain ways that that at least is like a big factor. And if you're conflating then genitalia with gender, then you are maybe operating in kind of like a transphobic way. And if you're invested in being less transphobic, that you should perhaps interrogate those things. So, you know, an example being like, if you are someone who says that among your dating pool that you date men and you are only dating like a particular type of man, like let's just say only cisgender men you're, and you're not entertaining the idea of dating trans men or, you know, going out of your way to, you know, in, include that in your, when you're going through dating apps or whatever, then I would argue that you are probably operating in kind of a transphobic way. And I don't know, to me, this seems kind of like not much of an intuitive leap, but um, the post was pretty, uh, a lot of people felt really affirmed and were happy about it, but there was a lot of people that got really upset and um, sort of attacked me and wrote me some pretty nasty stuff um, saying that I was promoting like non-consensual sexual activity. And so we also wanted to talk today, since Mia is so well-versed in consent around like, Mia, wh why is this not a consent? issue yes um i think it's a pretty huge leap to go from the suggestion of uh like it's worth interrogating where your preferences come from going from there to this person is suggesting that i should have sex with people that i don't want to have sex with um no one wants to have sex with anyone who doesn't want to have sex with them like I, I mean, I shouldn't say no one, but we're not suggesting that you should go have sex with people that you don't want to have sex with because the other person probably wouldn't want to have sex with you <laughs> knowing that you it's don't. In, it's increasing the like potential for like harm happening in a lot of ways. Yes. Um, and uh, the, I mean, if, if you're invested in being less transphobic, um, then then the invitation is to like look with a critical lens at where your preferences come from. Um, that does not mean that you should go out and like, please, please interrogate and criticize where your preferences come from before you have sex with people. Um, like do not just go out and do that. That is not the suggestion that we're making at all. No, not at all. But that was what people seem to really assume about that post in particular. And I don't know if anyone watching this is going to make that same, like, that uh, inference around this. But to be explicit, that is not what we are saying. This is not a question of any kind of consent stuff informing this. What we are saying, yeah, is to investigate where your preferences and your desires come from. Um, and there are ways in which you can challenge those things that don't involve dating or hooking up with someone that you don't want to have right. 
the, the grammar of that sentence was off. But, um, <laughs> but yeah, but challenging these things in some ways. So like what we've offered previously in this thing would be like, what kind of porn are you watching? When you do find someone that you think, oh, that person's super hot. Wow. Like take a moment, investigate what 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 in the physical indicator what visual indicator is it like how they're dressed was it how they move like what what is informing this immediate like sort of spark that happens and i think with some investigation you could probably determine like if this is coming from you if it's undoubtedly being influenced by some environmental factors as well Mm-hmm. And if you, you know, take some time to work on those things, we can shift our perspective. We right. can shift our perception around those things. Um, and you can and... open up the the scope of like who you have the potential to connect with, which is a beautiful thing. Totally. And I think people kind of uh center sexuality in a particular way pansexuality bisexuality homosexuality queerness heterosexuality but even within that framework transness is something that doesn't always get brought into it i read this study a few years ago that was a psychological study that wasn't even sort of centering on dating preferences but part of something that was built into the question infrastructure was, um, it was like an anonymous survey and part of it was dating preferences. I forget why that was an important criteria for this other thing that they were trying to investigate. And within that framework, it sort of exposed all of these transphobic biases where cis women who were interviewed, who you know considered themselves to be like queer or lesbians were far more likely to date trans men and like had very little interest in dating trans women within this Mm. framework. So to me, that says that these cis women are viewing trans men not as their gender and not viewing trans women as their gender because if you are a cisgender lesbian who says you date women and you're not dating trans women, then you are probably transphobic. And it kind of all of that was reflected in all of these capacities where like, you know, gay cis men wanted to date other cis men. And again, we're like, no one really wanted to date trans women on this survey, which is ultimately an indication of how pervasive trans misogyny is. But um, for, you know, the gay cis men in this study were more likely to date a trans woman than they were to date a trans man again. Mm. And then, you know, And again, a lot of this doesn't like leave a lot of nuance for gender perspective. Like I'm a non-binary femme person. So I always joke around like, what does a heterosexual relationship even look like for me? Is it dating another non-binary femme? You know, like what, I don't have an opposite gender. So like, it's all just kind of null and void for me when you sort of like interrogate it in those ways. But even if that is your framework, you can still build in a lens that challenges transphobia. And I don't know if a lot of people are looking at it in that perspective. Right. So to me, that comes back to this thing that people are ultimately dating on genitalia. Yes. Yes. Which, which 
invalidates um, a lot of trans and non-binary people's genders. Totally. And, you know, just like to play devil's advocate, me and I were talking about this. If you are dating, like, you're like, oh, I only, okay, I am dating on genitalia. I, this is like, I only want to date someone with this type of genitalia. And like, let's say we're talking by and large about cis men. If you're, that's your focus. And again, if you're not dating trans women, like, I mean, it would kind of be probably a little bit harmful and exotifying and fetishizing if that was like how you're, but just for the sake of this argument, those people are probably not dating trans people also. So it really just comes back to this way in which transphobia informs so much of dating preference. And I, I see a lot of people doing great trans advocacy work and working on their own lives to challenge these things. But it's like, those people aren't dating trans people also. Yeah. And so I ask like, why? Right. If you consider yourself a heterosexual, then like, how is gender informing that sexuality as well? Right. Right. Are you reducing trans people to their genitalia? Are you reducing cis people to their genitalia as well? You know, and that's the thing also is that this negates a lot of humanity of like a lot of different people. Right. Um, I think one of the, there's two things that I want to address from the post that you made. One is um, uh, that you so beautifully outline, like if you like, phalluses there's so many ways to sexually engage with phalluses and if you like orifices there are everyone has orifices um and then the second thing that i just want to put down is why i want to talk about why you specifically received the kind of pushback that you did yeah i mean that's the thing also is like when it comes down to like particular sex acts there's all different ways we can kind of like get off with different kinds of bodies. There's all kinds of tools we can use. And so I would also invite people to like open up their imagination and not be so tethered to like particular, like a body in order to like get whatever they're trying to get out of it. Because like all of us have so many, we're all very resourceful and imaginative people. We can like find all kinds of ways to do so. I mean, aren't there like, aren't there dildos that are like hundreds of thousands of years old? Like people have been figuring out how to penetrate each other and themselves without body parts for literally hundreds of thousands of years. Yeah, there's all kinds of ways. So also like that doesn't necessarily need to be limited. And I think, uh, you know, a lot of these dating, this again, just goes back and I hate to keep hammering this point home, but that like dating preferences are then by and large, like, socially informed by like opinion around <laughs> things of like what's acceptable what's not right. what is considered shameful what's considered deviant all of these things and a lot of these have um political motivations like there's things don't exist in a vacuum there's like reasons why fat phobia is so pervasive there's reasons why transphobia is so pervasive and so integrate that into your dating life in terms right. of like challenging those things Right. If you're if you're criticizing those how those systems make their way into the way that you move through the world and the way that you speak and the people that you talk to um, and the media that you consume, 
let's extend that to how our preferences are shaped and how they manifest outwardly from us. Um, I think another, another thing is like, um, there's a lot of media that has shaped how we understand that someone will be treated if they do date a trans person. Um, and I'm thinking specifically right. about watching Ally McBeal. And I mean, there's one of the, it, there's like horrible trans representation by our standards that I think, you know, it's like hard to imagine, but like by the standards of the late nineties was actually like pretty radical. Um, but one of the things that struck me the most is the way that the, the cis man at the office who dates a trans woman, the way that he's treated by his peers um, is disgusting. Like, I mean, it's, it's horrifying the way that he's ostracized and made fun of and all these things. And so that also would inform, like, of course that would inform someone's preferences. If they find themselves attracted to a trans person, there would be a lot, if that's the only exposure that you've had to, to like what it's like to date a trans person um, as a cis person, then of course there's like fear and anxiety around embracing that desire. There's also a horrifying episode, like an outrageously fat phobic episode where someone is like, you know, who's gonna love me? And like everyone kind of reinforces it for him. And um, so if that's the representation that you see as a child about, um, the, you know, the experience of dating as a fat person, like, of course, that's going to inform how you then uh, feel as you walk through the world and the judgments that you're going to make of other people and of yourself. Right. And so just like shift that stuff. And, and what this Ally McBeal anecdote tells me, at least in terms of a trans perspective, is, again, this like, I would say, general, like, misinformed perspective around conflation of gender and sexuality. So often, like, even though, you know, per our point around, like, how do we examine heterosexuality in a non-binary framework, like, they are related in some way, but they don't have this, like, one-to-one -one corollary that I think a lot of people, like, don't totally, or maybe they, they say that they understand in a theoretical framework, but then we, like, don't fully, like, go there, you know? Right. Like, if you're dating a trans person, you know, then that inherently, like, and you're, and you're a cis person, then, like, then you're gay or whatever. All right. these, like, myths around these things that it's not inherently true. Like, yeah, if you're dating, like, a queer person, then, like, that might, like, inform your queerness and or sort of that stuff. But it's not, like, this thing, but it is the dominant perspective that, like, it is shameful or deviant or is is connected directly to like gay and lesbian community or queer community in these ways that's not always true right. um and yeah we me and i also talked a lot about when i made this post that um there was a lot of vitriol that came my way over overarching there was a lot of like support which was really sweet it seemed to like really um impact a lot of people in a way that i was really happy about but i did get a lot of pushback from it and the pushback from it was of a very particular perspective um and was very heated and very vitriolic and a lot of it was attacking my character in a particular w way you know um 
content warning for like sexual assault related things there was a lot of people that were calling me um like a rape apologist mm -hmm. and um sort of misconstruing this invitation to sort of investigate preferences as me outright telling people that if they don't engage in non-consensual sex that they're transphobic or whatever um and it came from a like a very particular type of demographic of people some of it was other trans people and queer people but um it was uh not i will just say it was not trans women who were um coming for me in this particular way and i would argue that this representation and why I got so much sort of really intense, angry pushback from this um, is trans misogyny in that people see me as a trans woman as being inherently deviant um, and that I'm a sexual predator and that there is this association for trans women and a connection to phallus a connection to penis genitalia as like being violent you know and we see this time and time again it's why all of these um criticisms of bathroom bills only really tend to focus on like trans women in women's restrooms and how that's unsafe for women and children and you know trans women in the women's locker room and how like how unsafe this is for women and children, cis women and children. Um, and there is just time and time again, a representation, a very ill-informed representation um, of trans women as being like violent sexual predators just by nature of our bodies. And I feel that that was a big part around why people were so reactive and projecting and jumping to these conclusions that I was going as far to like encourage people to like rape other people um, yeah. in this post that was exactly what me and I are discussing today was just an invitation to look deeper into your dating preferences and that you know probably I mean I can say that for sure I know I am I am um this is something that I do, like my preferences are informed by dominant standards, for sure. There's been ways in which I've had to like check and investigate all of these things. There's ways in which I'm, you know, transphobia informs how I move in the world, you know, even as a non-binary intersex trans femme, like, and I do a lot of work to extricate that stuff, but I'm not, it's kind of like inescapable to some degree because of how pervasive it is in terms of like everything that's around us, at least in the society that I exist in. Um, and so I was, you know, just inviting that sort of investigation to deepen the way you are challenging these systems inside of yourself. And I think that a lot of the pushback had to do with a trans misogynist perspective of me as a sexual predator. I think we talked a little bit about like how different it would be if I had made that post. Um, and I'm sure that I also would have received pushback, but not the same accusations of like 
and not just being a rape apologist, but like actually encouraging it, encouraging people to go out and have sex with people that they don't want to have sex with, um, which is completely not like not what you were saying. Um, I think had I had I made that post, um, it wouldn't have felt like threatening to people. Yes, that that's a good way to put it. People clearly felt very threatened by it. Yeah, yeah. Um, and that, to me, that came from the language of comments that were left and the like innumerable DMs that I got from people around it. <clears throat> and it was so intense. And so, um, yeah, they were, everyone was so certain that I had to go back and I started to like self gaslight. And I asked Mia, I was like, Mia, is this post like, you know about consent? Is this post like, encouraging any sort of non-consensual sexual activity even to like a degree and me I was like no absolutely not. so so to me if that's the case if I was so explicit in like what the post's intention was and the language around it and people were still coming to these assumptions in such a, like I'm completely positive that this is what you're saying CJ and I'm gonna like attack you over this that that had to be informed by something else yeah um, so yeah, well, and, and also, I think it was very clear from the people who, like, you know, the the dominant demographic of people who were um, responding in that way. Um, I, I think it's worth naming who that was. Are you not? Do you not want to do that? Yeah, no, I can. I mean, I just, you know, I don't I, I hate generalizations. But I mean, in this case, it was like, it was mostly like seemingly like based at least on like seeing Instagram profiles and stuff like a lot of like AFAB non-binary people mm -hmm. um there were some trans men and there was a handful of cis women and all of them were white right um so I don't know that also told me a particular story around things taking into account like generalizations are like not always like a beneficial thing. But when this was like, you know, it was a lot of responses too. It wasn't just like yeah. one or two. Um, yeah. Very like Andrea Dworkin esque who, and Andrea Dworkin talked about who's that. How Andrea Dworkin was like a, I want to say second wave feminist who argued she was fervently anti-porn and she argued that like all all penetrative sex actually i don't know if she said all penetrative sex i know that she said all sex between um and you know at the time it was just like a man and a woman but like now we would i'm almost positive that she would say anyone with with a penis and anyone who's being penetrated um uh is violent is like inherently violent and there's no way around that and interestingly like she was married to three different cis men um so like even in arguing that she was still continuing like she you know she was like having well presumably i guess we don't know that she was having sex with them but she was like married to this man and then simultaneously arguing that like all sex between a heterosexual cis man and a woman is violent. Um, and so that, 
you know, whether or not people like are directly informed by that, it's still like that line of thinking that it just is violent. And that, and I think that's in part why like you suggesting it was perceived as threatening to people, like not just, and, and, and as violent, as a promotion of violence. Right. Exactly. Yeah. I, I, I mean, that, that, that was what I came to understand in my experience of dealing with that on that post, which I thought was like, you know, I really wanted to make sure that it was explicit and like consent informed that it wasn't like, because again, like, I don't want anyone to be exotified or fetishized, which to just go out and like have sex with someone purely because it's someone you don't want to have sex with is like- Or to like prove that you're not transphobic. Like if you are transphobic, do not go have sex with trans people until and unless you are willing to examine where your preferences come from. Totally. So like, that would never be my encouragement, you know, around any of that stuff. It also negates that like, you know, informed sexual consent should involve both parties. So everyone, either people who are agreeing to these things should also have information around where it's coming from. And I know, like, I'm not super excited around going out and having sex with someone who's trying to like, um, prove that they're not transphobic by like having sex with me is not something that I'm particularly interested in um, and would consent to as well. Um, So yeah, it's just a big mess, unfortunately, um, around something that I think is really worthwhile and investigating. And I don't offer it from some sort of like high up on the hill kind of way. This is an experience that I had come to in terms of understanding how dominant beauty standards were also affecting like who I wanted to date with or yeah. who who I wanted to engage in dating practice with or who, who in general I like was finding attractive um and in the time the many many years of me investigating these things I have it's been a noticeable shift and it takes a lot of work you know yeah I I understand why people also are particularly like traumatized by certain types of like bodies and certain things speak through like social experience. Like we don't exist again in a vacuum, like patriarchal like systems, like cause a great deal of harm. There may be some particular reasons why people have certain like traumas and things like that, but you can investigate those things and do your best to like not let them inform how you're existing in the world. It's one thing to have trauma. It's another thing to allow trauma to inform your behavior consistently. In a way that perpetuates further trauma for other people. Exactly. Exactly. And I have a lot of compassion and empathy because I myself am someone who lives with a lot of trauma, but in terms of interrogating where it's come from and interrogating is maybe the wrong word, but investigating Mm -hmm. and doing work to um, support me moving in a way where trauma and fear is not like the primary motivator in my actions. I feel like I have made steps towards causing less harm in my life. Yes. Yes. And I I would also, um, I mean, I would say like my experience of doing this work of unpacking where these desires come from has also led to a much 
deeper and greater level of self-acceptance because in looking at things like, you know, we were going to mention body hair, like that was a thing that was um, something that brought me a lot of shame and a lot of fear around like who was going to find me attractive if anyone would find me attractive. Um, if I stopped shaving my armpits or shaving my legs or like didn't want to get all my pubes waxed off. Like that was something that was um, presented to me by my upbringing, by my by my mom, by the media, um, as like something that would disqualify me from being attractive to um, certain kinds of people that I was attracted to. And, and unlearning that involved me noticing when my judgments of other people came up and trying to reframe them in my mind, um, you know, trying to look at, look at those, um, those particular ways of presenting with more openness and like training my brain not to judge it. And that then became part of how I was engaging with myself. Like it created a much more positive relationship for me to have with my own body. Totally. Yeah. I mean, I've only had better sex when I've interrogated this in me and my dating has only been far more profoundly like beautiful in my life when I have stretched beyond whatever limitations were there before when I was just operating as like an ill-informed teenager who just like had these like very you know very narrow framework around what I thought was like beautiful Mm -hmm. even being a little punk who had already been kind of like was turned on to like oh yeah fucking beauty standards are really racist and informed by all these things like it it is it is one thing to like understand that on like um any kind of like i don't know just general like intellectual level or like thought level and then to be like oh shit how am i mm -hmm. responsible for promoting these ideas and furthering them of which many of us are culpable and really doing a deeper investigation into like, how am I moving in a way that furthers the machinations of these systems, you know? And that is work that I do all the time, every day, and have a lot more work to do on it. And uh, dating was just sort of a, a perspective that took a lot of work for me to investigate. And I'm still wrapping my head and body around, removing those things. But as I have, it has only furthered the um, capacity and my ability to experience like joy and pleasure and excitement in my life. Yes, me too. I think, you know, I think part of the reaction to, to suggesting this kind of interrogation or investigation rather is the word that you used um, is, is that I think like a post like the one that you made for some people is received as like an accusation that they are transphobic. And like, if you do not do X, then you are transphobic. And I, a lot of like the reframes that I use in my own mind as I move throughout my life and catch myself making judgments or having thoughts that are, you know, the result of like the media that I've consumed is I try to sort of simultaneously do two things that might seem like they're in conflict, but they're not. One is go like, okay, 
some system just worked through me. So I'm going to like look at where that came from and separate my like core self from that system. You know, like I just had a thought that was like fatphobic or racist or transphobic. And then I go like, okay, I, I recognize where that came from so that it doesn't then have bearing on like my worth or quality as a human being, like my character. But then at the same time, I do look at like, okay, that's in me. How do I now excavate that and like exorcise that out of me so that I don't perpetuate that again? So it's both like separating it, separating myself from the system so that I can like objectively look at it. And then also looking at like deep within myself, where is that coming from so that I can then move it through me and out. Totally. It's a little, it's a little flag that right. like comes up on your body and you can be like, okay, oh. wow, that's there. Th probably if there's a lot more there. Right. If I dig deep now, this flag has like given me a place around like where I can look deeper. Let me like do some investigative work there. I'm not going to say to experience a like horrible, hateful, bigoted thought that you have internalized is like a gift or anything like that. But it certainly is a, a chance to deepen an understanding around like how we do harm. And to me, that is like how we are going to like move forward in truly like disestablishing these systems is to like understand how we're all culpable with harm. And yeah, I think a lot of people took that post as like, I don't know, manipulating like shame as some kind of like weapon or like social pressuring tool into someone doing something that they don't want to consent to. And undoubtedly there are a lot of ways in which like shame is like weaponized in our society to like manipulate people to like varying degrees mm -hmm. but it is also on you how much you allow shame for your own bigotry to inform your life like I understand that I am transphobic because I exist in a transphobic world and I'm not completely recoiling in like shame to admit that or to um, understand that that is just like a truth, you know? And so I think there is a big distinction there between, you know, being like, you're a transphobe and like, you're going to be, you know, canceled in society in this particular way, you know? I, and I think that like, you know, cancellation practice has its benefits. Um, but that's not, was not my intent in this post or even being like, if you do A, then you are likely transphobic it was not like a manipulation tactic to use like fear to get people to investigate these things. It was merely to offer a perspective around something that I understand to be accurate for me and mm -hmm. accurate for the world that I exist in. Your example was a really perfect example. It's like when these things come up, Oh wow. Okay. I'm operating in this particular way it seems like, oh, wow, that was a, a thought that, that, that indicates some kind of like, maybe, it, maybe it was like an, oh, wow, I'm acting in like an, or I'm thinking in an ableist framework. Where does that come from? I learned that somewhere in my life. I wasn't born with that inherently in my body. So we can kind of like reverse, excavate, find where those things are living, 
there's practices around awareness, body awareness, mental awareness, in which we can like find out where those things are living. And there's tools in which we can like remove them from our body. Yes. Um, I think, I think there's, there's a point about um, like, I think that often people will see something that like there was a perception with your post around um, that you were pointing a finger of blame at people or like calling people hypocrites. And I think, I think about this idea of hypocrisy a lot. I think just, I love that metaphor of the flag. Like when, when someone points out a, a place where I'm being hypocritical, I'm like, Oh, Whoa, thank you. I, I need to look at that. Um, but I think that there was a time in my life. And I think that a lot of, and, and I think that this is like a common reaction to being told that you're a hypocrite. It's like, that that hearing that you are a hypocrite is like a, a character attack. Um, it means right. that you're not living in alignment with your values or you're not practicing what you preach. And like you you can't see every vantage point of a situation. You can only see like your subjective experience. You can attempt to empathize. But there are blockages to that because, you know, like you and I have different identities. Like there's only so much that I can imagine what it's like to be you. Um, no matter how well I get to know you, I cannot know what it's like to live in your mind and your body. And so totally. the elements of like learning that I've done something hypocritical or said something hypocritical, like that's really important feedback. And I think that there's a lot of resistance to hearing that people feel that they're being blamed and so then the reaction is defensiveness totally um yeah and i've had i've had a lot of experiences around being called in on harm from friends and undoubtedly i felt some shame around that and mm -hmm. there's been times <laughs> where i've also acted in defensive ways um and i'm really that's something that i don't want to invest in as like how I react when I'm offered these things um, because it is a huge gift to be given, you know, insight into ways we can do better or ways we can like mitigate how much harm we cause. And so trying to integrate that into how I act is like, a, is something I'm heavily invested in, but that doesn't mean that I'm perfect at it all the time. Right. Of course not. Of course not. Yeah. But something to be working towards for sure yeah always the goal but like i think about these things as like the math equation where the limit does not exist where it's like once you recognize something there's like a really often really fast like improvement you know and then it sort of peters out where like the instances of where like my transphobia for example show up are getting like smaller and smaller and subtler and subtler, but they're never going to get to zero because I live in a, this world, you know, I live in this transphobic world. So totally. I can, I can get closer, but I'm never going to get to zero. And that's a really hard thing to, I mean, I think I've like worked really hard to, to accept that because it, it's hard to accept that because it means that I will cause harm and I have to reckon with the fact that that is going to happen and that I will never be perfect at it. Yeah, it's the goal. We should be 
we should be aiming for zero as the goal, but, but, but understand that the tangible reality of that is pretty elusive, you know, at least within as while a, a society and a, you know, a, a life exists in the way that we all live. Right. There's ways we all further these systems to varying degrees. There's a lot of ways in which we're not aware of it. And that is sort of the main hope around this conversation that we're having today around that post that I made was just to bring sort of like additional awareness around an area that tended to be um, not as commonly addressed as I see other ways in which people examine transphobia. I don't see a lot of people talking about dating and I see it all the time. I hear about transphobia and dating from tons of my friends who are trans, you know, I have experienced a lot of it. Um, and yeah, and there's been ways in which undoubtedly I have also been transphobic in how I've, I've been dating and it's taken a lot of work to even get into a place of awareness. And so I was like, cool, great. I think this is something that should be addressed. Um, mm -hmm. And I want to thank you for talking about this um, bravely today. Cause again, it is like, kind of an inflammatory issue for people but like let's reiterate that this is not a consent issue this mm -hmm. is not encouraging any kind of non-consensual sex in any capacity with anyone all it is is an invitation to investigate where our biases come from right i think there's the place where i see it as a consent issue is that i think that all of us have like we did not consent to these systems that we have been born into. Like we did not, we have not consented to having our preferences shaped by society and the media the way that they have been. And so the part where consent comes in, I think is what we're talking about, which is investigating why I have the desires that I have and where they come from so that I can, I can do the best I can not to perpetuate that harm. Totally. If we can learn something, we can also unlearn it. You know, right. if we forget something to varying degrees, we can remember it. There's ways of living in which these were not the pervasive systems. You know, there's countless cultures that have existed and continue to exist that celebrate, you know, gender as, as we understand it to varying degrees, like in a non-binary framework transphobia is not something that's inherent it's something that's culturally informed we can unlearn those things right if we choose to it takes work we have to choose if we choose to. to we are Which... not born with an inherent ableist perspective these are things that we are learned and things that we are taught from the way we even exist in the way like a city infrastructure is built but we can challenge those things we can unlearn them and I believe in people's capacity to shift and change those things. And where you do have consent is in your own volition in engaging with those things. Once you have some kind of awareness around it, you can make consensual informed choices to unlearn, to learn new ways of existing. Which brings us to some of our call to action points or like questions that I would encourage people to ask if they are looking to investigate where these desires come from and challenge 
Hit me with the call to action points. Okay. Um, well, one of the questions is like, who do you follow on Instagram? Um, is it, you know, is it all like thin, conventionally attractive, able-bodied white people, white cis people? Like if that's who your feed is um, mainly showing to you, uh, there's a really easy way to change that. Um, what media do you consume? Are you looking at it critically? Um, like I've been doing a lot of uh, going back and looking at the media from when I was a kid, like a lot of the TV from when I was a child and a teenager and tr trying to track like where did these ideas, these like sexist, homophobic, racist, fatphobic, transphobic ideas come to me and how were they packaged? You know, were they packaged in this like in a joke um, so that it didn't seem so serious? Like, you know, why would I think to challenge uh, what Friends is teaching me when there's like a laugh track, which is basically telling me that like dozens of people are finding this funny. It's mainstream TV. How could it be telling me anything bad? Um, yeah. So yeah, do you want to expand on those? Oh, I, I don't know if I need to expand on that. Yeah, just interrogate what you're watching. Right. Ex um, expand your framework. Are you just watching Euphoria? Is that what you think, you know, all high school student, you know, like there's ways in which like, and a lot, a lot of mainstream media functions in this way because dominant beauty standards are things that by and large people find to be alluring. And so that's how like people make money is by utilizing these things. Right. It's why a lot of celebrities adhere and conform to these dominant beauty standards. But there's plenty of other things out there in which you can consume or you can consume that media but have um have a critical framework of it also you know it doesn't need to inherently like influence you in in the way to like uphold and support those ways of the standards operating right i also would say you know like whenever you're on a dating app you are teaching the algorithm who you're attracted to by uh by with various variables so like one is like how long you spend on someone's profile um so if there's someone who comes up who's like outside of um you know the the type of person that you typically date like you can look more thoroughly at that profile and make sure that you are then seeing more people who are outside of like the aesthetic that you normally date or the demographic that you normally date. totally and maybe maybe we're getting ahead of ourselves maybe that's somewhere someone isn't already at so like that's a step you can think is like is there a pattern in which people you have dated <laughs> or or tried to date or found attractive like are there any patterns that emerge there are there any consistencies that you can pinpoint that might be a good step for people in terms mm -hmm. of addressing where their biases lie. If you can look at like a particular pattern that emerges for you, I would imagine that probably there is to yeah. some degree. Right. And it's up to you to identify that pattern. And um, these patterns are not inherently bigoted or biased. There may be a lot of reasons why you date in a particular way that you do. Yes. All, all, all I'm suggesting is that um, that it 
that you investigate in it and be informed. Yes. Right. Around why you do the things that you do. Right. You know, I, I myself, as a trans femme person, there may be some very particular reasons why I don't date certain types of people. You know, I feel a lot safer dating other trans people. One of my partners is cisgender and is an angel and incredible and is one of the best relationships I've ever had. But, but you know, there are reasons why in moving and dating that I might be more invested in dating other trans people. And that comes into, calls into a question of like um, self-preservation and safety and me trying to like reduce the amount of harm that I experience. So there are ways in which, you know, preferences are not inherently bigoted, but, you know, investigate it because there are ways in which my decisions are informed by those things and I don't want to invest in those systems. Right, right. Yeah, it's an ongoing forever practice and your preferences are not, um, I, you know, they, they were not placing blame on anyone for their preferences. Um, they are not, they do not uh, indicate like a character judgment about a person. Um, they merely are shaped by the environment that you're in and what you've had exposure to throughout your life. Yeah. And you can, and, and so we're giving some, some tangible ways in which you can, you can shift those things. And so just an initial investigation around like understanding the whys and wherefores. Um, I would say, you know, a way to like operate to challenge these things that's not directly placing someone in harm and we're avoiding like fetishization and exotifying people or objectifying people or doing something to like sort of prove to yourself whatever things we've addressed earlier in this is um, you can just like spend time in community with people also like develop friendships, develop relationships with, you know, all kinds of people, coworkers, et cetera, you know? Mm -hmm. I'm not saying that you won't harm people that you're not in a sexual relationship with. Like, that's not what I'm saying, but there are ways in which I think if you spend time with people that are outside of the pattern in which you normally associate yourself with, that that is a way to also get beyond systems of biases and bigoted frameworks. Right. Right. And I think the, the conclusion that I've drawn from this kind of self-examination is that it has ultimately made my relationships more fulfilling um, and, and also improved my relationship with myself and my body totally definitely it's helped me investigate like how consistently i'm gonna do harm based on like me being a white person and the ways in which i'm complicit and further systems of white supremacy there's a lot of ways in which it's given me really helpful insight to like find ways to like reduce the amount of harm that i do because of these things right right and um yeah so I know, and I know there's a lot of you out there that are doing those things, but are you doing those things when it comes to dating? Right. To me, it's um, an area that is neglected kind of sometimes. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's sort of like 
untouchable in a way. Um, right, because I think it comes back to this thing where people sometimes are like, oh, well, these are my preferences and I'm allowed to have them. And if, and if you're telling me I'm not allowed to have them, like that's not consensual. Like, you know, right. you're telling me that I should engage in sex with someone that I don't want to have sex with. That's bad. That's not consensual. And it's like, well, you know, no, no one's telling you not to. And yes, that would be like, uh, uh, to engage in non-consensual sex would be very terrible and harmful. But, um, but you also can like, choose to be transphobic in your dating preferences or not, you know, or look at it you know, and that's on you to like resolve those things or live with it. Maybe you're fine being transphobic. That's, yeah. You know, that's on you. Right. In which case, please stay away from trans people and don't have sex with them. <laughs> totally. But <laughs> If you are looking to challenge these things, look into that. Look into yes. how you're dating. Look into who, and even beyond tangible dating practice, look into who you would would entertain the idea of dating. Right. That's the first step is like, who am I even thinking about out in the world? Because like, that's a good way to like work on these things without involving someone else and bringing them into your mess. Yeah, right. It's internal work. It starts with you. Yeah, totally. And for people that are just tuning in or whatever, uh, like, you know, this is work that me and Mia are doing. We're not speaking to you from a, like, we've done the work and you need, you know, yeah. like I am constantly doing this stuff and it is, there are ways in which I fall short of it all the time, but I am invested in it and I am definitely getting better at um, identifying the way that these things live in my body. Right. Me too feel like that's a good place to wrap up and if we have to do a part two we will do a part two great yeah and yeah i don't know if people have questions about this do we want to make space for people to send questions anywhere in some particular way is that opening up a box of worms what do you think mia um I personally do not want to at this in my DMs. I think the only way that I would be willing to answer questions about it is like if if it was within the context of like um, something that I could then answer on the podcast. Um, like if 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 someone has questions about this and is willing to let me read the question out loud, or if they send a voice memo and I can put it on the podcast so that it's like. Um, you know, available for more people to learn and not just like me one-on-one -on -one with someone in my DMs, I could then have you on the podcast and we could answer questions there. Right. No, no DMs, but what, like if someone wants to email or something and, in, yeah. and, and, and first check in with some consent around like, if you have space to answer some yeah. questions. Yeah. And if someone wants to DM a question that I can answer on the podcast, that's fine. Um, just, I would, I, I only want to take questions if I can like repurpose them somewhere that's like beneficial to more people than just the one person asking me. Totally, totally get that. And the reason that we had comments off on this 
particular IG live that we were doing was just to mitigate um, potential harm. Since last time I talked about these things, I had a lot of really, really nasty things said towards to me um, that were a little bit ill-informed and it's, I just had coffee. So I'm not ready for that just yet today. So, yeah. Um, but we really appreciate everyone who came to watch and we'll, be posting some highlights from this mm -hmm. as well. So, um, Mia, it's always a pleasure to talk about these things with you. Um, I'm looking forward to making more mistakes with you in my life and finding ways for uh, to like do repair work on them and to learn from them. So, I I really love that commitment i'm i am also looking forward to making mistakes with you in the future and yeah. learn from them and with you. i'm being cheeky i'm not actually looking forward to making mistakes but i am looking forward to learning in my life and i'm happy to have you as someone in my life that i feel safe and trust to help me with that stuff me too i i love you very much cj oh i love you so much um okay great well i'll see you soon and okay. thanks for doing this yeah, thank you. Bye. Okay, bye.